0: Psalm 119, beginning at verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. These first eight verses of Psalm 119 are given to the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the first letter in their alphabet. And therefore, every line in this uh, section... Begins with the letter Aleph. It begins by describing man's blessedness. And he starts with the idea that being undefiled in the way is a blessing. You saw that right there in the first verse. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. I find this interesting because when you just think it at the first thought, you think in the modern world today, and I think it was no different in the ancient world when the psalmist first wrote, That there are many people who believe that the life that's lived undefiled in the way is boring at best. What good is an undefiled life? What good is life if you don't defile it up a little bit? The idea is that if there's no defilement in it, then there's no fun in it. Yet the one who walks in God's word knows the true blessedness of living and enjoying an undefiled life. And we can simply say that God is blessed. Don't you believe that? If there's any blessed being in this universe, it's God himself. I can't imagine that God, enthroned in heaven, is worried or stressed about anything. He's at complete happiness and peace. Well, God wants us to share his blessedness. And his word shows us the way to share that blessedness. And it is found by being undefiled in the way. If you do statistical surveys and opinion polls and look at the research data, it constantly demonstrates that those who live lives in general conformity to God's standards are happier. They enjoy life more, and they're more content. Yet the illusion remains for many people that living a defiled life is somehow the fun life. I think we need to let God show us the way to a happy life. And it's centered on the simple idea of being undefiled in the way. The the reason why we are not happy is because we sin. And, And the main reason, or one of the main reasons, is why we sin so much is because we don't know God's word well enough. You see, we need to be instructed by God to live the way that we should. Left to ourselves, we don't know. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have a conscience that rules within our mind and in our heart and shows us how to live. No, but conscience is an imperfect guide. There are many people who have done very terrible things, yet in line with their conscience, at least at the moment. That's why he adds, verse 1 again, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. In the mind of the psalmist, there's a strong and definite connection between being undefiled in the way and walking in the law of the Lord. To walk in the law of the Lord, in fact, is to be undefiled in the way. You see, we wouldn't know what a pure life really was without God telling us. Now again, certainly some aspects of a pure life are revealed in human conscience and they're widely known among humanity. Yet there are other aspects of a pure life that we would only know from God revealing it to us in his word. Now here in the very first verse, the author of Psalm 119 uses a phrase referring to the written revelation of God. You saw it there in verse 1, didn't you? Who walk in the law of the Lord. And the many various ways that he he does refer to the Word of God in this psalm show us how much he knew, how much he loved, and how much he respected God's Word. Right there in verse 1, the word he uses is Torah. And Torah refers to the great Word or law of God. It it can describe the first aspect of the Bible, the first five books of Moses, but it can also be used in a more general way to refer to all of God's written revelation. So he says now in verse 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. See, that's a second way of referring to the word of God. And if you think about it, to keep his testimonies is virtually the same as walking in the law of the Lord. And here is an example of the principle of parallelism in Hebrew poetry. It's used both for explanation, but also for emphasis, If you think about it in the ancient world, if they wanted to emphasize something, they couldn't write it in bold font or put it in a special color or italics, right? So in the Hebrew mind, repetition was often used for emphasis. And so he says, you're blessed not only by walking in the law of the Lord, but then also those who keep his testimonies. And I like keep because keep implies doing, not only hearing. It's not just hearing God's word, but actually keeping it. And then he goes on to explain here in verse 2, who seek him with the whole heart. You see, if one will seek God with the whole heart, it must include diligent study into God's written revelation. Now, there are good and important ways to seek God apart from his word. Prayer is a way to seek God apart from his word, is it not? Worship is a way to seek God apart from His Word. Fasting, serving God is a way to seek God apart from His Word. Yet if those do not include seeking God in and through His Word, those other practices can be dangerous. Can you imagine prayer in and of itself being dangerous? It can if it's not anchored to the Word of God now he says here that not only will he seek God, but if you notice what he says in verse 2, seek him with the whole heart. Don't miss the emphasis on the heart. Sometimes because we're dealing with the word of God and what is written on the page, sometimes people can think of it as primarily an intellectual or an academic endeavor. Now please, my friends, there is an intellectual aspect to the word of God. There's an academic aspect to the word of God. But that is not its core. Its core is that it's understood and grabbed hold of by the human heart. And the whole heart is vital. God is one and we will not know him closely or clearly until our heart is one and we seek him with a whole heart. This is a challenge to every one of us. You know, there are people here this evening and the problem with your life is that you have a divided heart. You love God. But, but you also love, well, in the psalmist day, they would call them idols, would they not? We're sophisticated now. We don't call them idols. But they're the same thing, are they not? And a person has a divided heart. And then there's other people here. Your heart is divided, but not in the sense of given over to idolatry. Your heart is broken. Can I say to the brokenhearted and to the divided-hearted, God's answer for you is the same. Come, come to his word, look to his word. Let God speak to you about who he is and what he has done for you. So he continues to describe this blessing into verse 3. He says, they also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. Again, that's the idea repeated from the first two verses. These ones keep his testimonies. They are undefiled in the way, and they also do no iniquity. There's a purity and a goodness that marks their life. They have learned his ways from the written revelation, and now God gives grace and power to walk in his ways. Now, continuing on into verse 4, he says, You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Now, he begins verse 4 by saying, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. You see, the, the psalmist connects Conna- commanded obedience with blessings to the obedient. You see, the reason why God commands us to do certain things is not only because it honors him, which it does, but it's also the path to blessing. You see, isn't this wonderful? We need to understand that God commands because things, it, there is a certain blessed way to live. Not as if God commands, just sort of capriciously. Isn't this the way we often think? It's a temptation for us to think just this way. That somehow God is up in heaven, an old man on a rocking chair or something like that, right? And his main job is to look down on earth and see if anybody's having any fun. And if they're having any fun, they must stop that right away. (laughs) Hey, you know, that's a very common perception of who God is but it's a very childish one, is it not? I mean, when you grow a little older and a little wiser and maybe through some bitter experience in this world, you realize that the things God commands us to do are for our own good. It's as God knows this blessed life and he looks at it and says, live blessed. As he said to ancient Israel, he said, I set before you life and death, choose life. Here it is. Here's a way to live that will bring blessing and goodness into your life. Now, won't you live this way? Because I love you. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Now, I want you to notice, when he says, you have commanded us, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to God, isn't he? And already by verse 4, the psalmist has turned his heart, turned his mind towards prayer. He's going to hold that position of prayer throughout almost all the psalm. Now, isn't this interesting? It shows us that the psalmist was not only a student of Scripture, but he was also a man of prayer. He got into prayer. He was there actively praying what he knew about God's Word. And so he says, "'You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently.'" Can I just add one thing before we go on to the next line? Can you notice that God commanded us to keep his precepts? I find some people, some religious people, they think that God's main command to us is to make precepts for other people. Isn't that true? That this is God's great mission for us, for us to make a lot of rules for other people. We make precepts for them. No, no, no. The focus needs to be, no, God, you've given it to me to keep your precepts. That's what you've commanded me to do. And then he says in verse 5, and catch the power of this prayer, oh that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Now this wasn't only a pious wish, it was a prayer for the ability to obey God's word. He received a commandment while understanding his own lack of ability to keep those commands apart from the work in himself. Here the psalmist gets personal. This isn't a theological treatise on written revelation. It's interaction with the living God regarding his primary way of showing himself to us. He says, listen, God, I need you to move in me because I need to be directed to keep your statutes. I'm so glad he said this because wouldn't you get the idea if all we had was verses one and two, wouldn't you get the idea that he was a holier-than-thou kind of guy? Well, I'm so perfect... And when you miserable people come up to my level of perfection in walking with God, well, then maybe I'll speak with you. If all you had was verses 1 and 2, you might think that. But then you see the heart of the psalmist. Oh, he knows that God's standard is high, and we need to walk in it. And then he's pleading with God, Oh, God, I need to live this way. I need you to work in my heart this way. And then he says, then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. He knew the shame that comes when God's standard is compared to our life. And he prayed for the power to live an unashamed life. And when he does, then he says, continuing on into verse 7, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. You see, he didn't only want to praise God, but he wanted to do it with uprightness of heart. And isn't that a wonderful thing? To come and to just let yourself go and praise before God because you know that you're right with God. Now, hopefully, your idea of being right with God isn't that you've got enough brownie points or stars on your chart or however you want to think of it. You recognize that your rightness with God is because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. But with that real kind of uprightness of heart, you can come and worship Him without abandon. And then he says in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Do you sense the note of desperation in the psalmist? He knows God's word and he loves God's word, but at the same time, he's very conscious of his inability, apart from the work of God in his life, to live God's word. If God were to forsake him, he would be utterly lost. And so he pleads with God, do not forsake me utterly. Friends, I hope you are at that place of desperation with your own life, where you realize that that, that what God wants you to be and wants you to do is absolutely impossible without him living and working within you. You see, the heart that sings, uh, do not forsake me utterly, is a heart that longs to be close to God. And that's exactly where the psalmist was. He says, Lord, I'm so dependent on you that don't forsake me. Leave me in close contact with you. This is the furthest thing in the world from a holier-than-thou kind of believer. But it's a man in great dependence upon God and his word. Now, we need to take that to heart, do we not? We come to God's word. And we come to God's Word knowing that it shows us the right way to live, but at the same time very aware that we fall short of that. And where does that lead us to do? To cry out in desperation before God, saying simply as it is in verse 8, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Father, that is our prayer here tonight. We need you, Lord God. Father, it's, it's not like we need a little help. Lord, I... I won't speak for anybody else in this room, but I'll speak for myself. It's so far beyond in my life needing a little help. I need you, Lord, to be my life, my power, my strength. And, Lord, I need you to communicate these things to me in and through your word. We worship you here together this evening.